the transition. Well, it's good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. It's good to be with you all and welcome everybody that's joining us online. Uh, we are in a series called What's Next, where we're talking about our unique spiritual DNA, our spiritual family. So if you're new, um, you're coming in at the right moment. You're hearing about who we are as a family and how God has woven a story together for us to run. And so uh, this morning, I'm going to talk about the foundation that, that we live and operate from as a spiritual family, and that's a culture of prayer. We live from a culture of prayer. And so uh, we're going to be jumping into that today. Let's, uh, let's have a word of prayer as we get into the word, and let's ask Holy Spirit to release revelation. So Lord, we love you. We thank you for the way you've met us already. Your presence is here. Your spirit is so available Thank you for touching our hearts, our minds, our bodies. And now I just ask, open our spirit to receive the word of God and, and to encourage us with vision and clarity of where you're calling us as a spiritual family. Lord, I'm so grateful that we all, we all get to participate. We all get to play. Every age, young and old, Male and female, every culture, we all get to be a part of your story. Thank you, God. And that every member of the body is so valuable. So, Lord, I'm asking even this morning, speak to us with clarity about who you're inviting us to be. Show us the unfolding of your plan in the kingdom and our part, how we get to participate we give you thanks for that in Jesus' name, and everybody said amen. Amen. Well, that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about our place in God's story as we look at um, our DNA and our culture of prayer that, that God's given us. You know, there's an unfolding story of the kingdom of God. There's a big story that God is always working toward. And ultimately, it's this, that Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign forever. He's coming back. I like to say it this way, Jesus is coming to a planet near you very soon. He's coming to rule and reign, and he's going to establish his kingdom in fullness across the earth. And there's many dynamic things that the Bible talks about that will happen unto that fullness. There's going to be days of great outpouring of the Holy Spirit and massive revival. There's going to be days of great shaking and challenge. I love reading the Bible because it tells us tomorrow's headlines today. I love it. And so that's what the Bible makes really, really clear that in the generation that the Lord returns, there's going to be these, these dynamic, dramatic things happening. And and there's this unfolding story. Well, when we look at the last year, we realize that, man, he's shaking things, isn't he? We've been talking about that a lot, that he's shaking everything that can be shaken so that the unshakable will remain. You know, shaking, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing because he's shaking everything that's, that's not permanent, he's shaking everything that's flesh, he's shaking everything that's shakable to see his kingdom, the unshakable kingdom of God, emerge. And there's this unfolding story. And, and one of the things that I know that he's doing right now is he's changing Christianity. He's changing the way it's understood. 
and he's changing the way it's expressed. We've crossed a line in 2020, and God is working in a different way in his church. And, and so he's changing the understanding, I think, in this, that, the, that believers are beginning to understand that it, it, it's not just Sunday morning Christianity. It's not just sort of get my quick Bible fix and just move on, that this thing is a lifestyle. This thing is 24-7. This is full contact Christianity where we live with our whole life, our whole heart given to Jesus, and we are filled with his spirit to impact others with that same glory that's on the inside of us. Amen. There's this, this understanding that people are coming to that they live as priests before God, that they are not their own. They've been bought with a price. We know the verses, but now it's time we're walking them out. Well, he's changing the understanding. He's changing the expression. He's changing the way that it looks in the earth. He's changing the way that those on the outside understand what the church is and, and the, the way that the church expresses who it is. We're in this dramatic moment, and, and, and I think there's something so powerful that happens in our hearts when we see the unfolding of his story, and then we see how he's worked in our own lives, and we realize that our story is part of his story. We're called according to his purpose. It's the hope of his calling that we're ultimately serving. And so often we get it twisted and we think it's my purpose, my destiny, my calling, and you have a purpose and destiny and calling. All that's true, but it sits underneath his calling, his purpose, and the unfolding drama of his kingdom. Well, when your calling and what God's been speaking to you collides and becomes clear with his unfolding plan, all of a sudden something happens in your heart. There is an ignition that takes place. You find yourself in the story, and, and man, it is revolutionary to the way that you think and the way that you live. And if you haven't had that happen where you're seeing yourself as a part of his story, if, if your Christianity is just, you know, just isolated, just sort of you, Man, I pray that even today that you would see yourself as a part of the unfolding story of the kingdom. Does that make sense? And so I want to just share this. Like, I think of it like a puzzle. You know, nobody has the whole puzzle. Uh, we show up and we have a few pieces that God's given us, a few things God's spoken to us, a few passions and, and, and things that are convictions. And we show up with our few puzzle pieces, but when we come together in family, when we come together in body, when everybody brings their puzzle pieces, it's there that we see the whole story. It's there that we see how the thing fits. And all of a sudden, what seems unclear to just us by ourselves, that when we put our pieces with our, our friend and then our brother and our sister, and we, we start putting the pieces together, all of a sudden there's this beautiful picture that emerges. None of us is alone. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. And God made us to, to live in a body. <laughs> right? <laughs> Y'all are like, what? A body? What? <laughs> no, we're made to be a part of each other. We know this, right? We're, we're made to, to, to have our, our destiny intertwined with one another. I think it's so shocking how God will take one person here, one person there, and cause them to run into each other and then tie together their destiny 
so that they cannot become what God has dreamed for them to become without the other person. It's fantastic. Well, that's what body is about. That's how we operate together. None of us can become what God's dreamed for us to become without each other. Every part of the body has pieces. The Bible says it this way, every joint supplies. And we all need one another. I need you to step into what God's called me to be. And you need me. And we need one another. Let me just say it. We need generations together. We need male and female together. We need black, white, Asian, Hispanic together or we'll never be what we're supposed to be. And so it's just a beautiful thing. And, and I'm seeing this happen with leaders across the church in, in a wild way. You know, I have the privilege of being able to connect with different leaders and, and um, so many that have, you know, massive ministries and and, and, you know, a lot of them are just my friends. I, I, you know, I don't think of them as the guy that's got the million followers. I just think of them as my bud. And, and we're, we're comparing notes right now. And there is a dynamic thing happening that's an unfolding part of God's plan. And there's, a, there's this uh, movie. It was a, a musical um, by Stephen Sondheim. It's called Into the Woods. How many ever heard or seen that? And Into the Woods, it's just not many people. It's this interesting um, story where all the, all the characters from all the like f- fables and um, fairy tales, they're all in the same story together. And what happens is they, they all go into the woods and they show up at the same clearing together. And they're looking at each other and they're like, wait a minute, you're in the story too? So it's like Red Riding Hood and Shrek and all of them, they're all in the same thing. And they're like, oh, it's all the same story. And this is what I'm seeing happen with the leaders in the body of Christ right now. That we're emerging in the woods together at the same point, And we're realizing, oh, it wasn't about this ministry or that ministry or this brand or that brand or that denomination or that non-denomination. It was about God doing something with all of us. And we're all on the same story. Well, as we compare notes, one of the things that's really, really evident right now, it's happening in so many places, that these leaders are all coming to the same conclusion that the church is to be a presence-centered people, a prayer-centered people. And I'm watching right now leaders from all sorts of different backgrounds. There's a friend of mine who was discipled by Tim Keller, who is a, a Presbyterian leader in New York. There's you know, another friend who who's, uh, he, he runs a, a Hispanic church, Hispanic Pentecostal church. I mean, I've got different friends from different places. One of my friends, he's a, from a Church of Christ background. And we're all showing up at the clearing, and we're all realizing it's about Jesus at the center. And they're, they're reordering their ministries. Uh, I've got another friend, a prophetic voice in the nation. He literally, this week, some of y'all will know who I'm talking about, he shut down his whole ministry, deleted all of his social media, has a million followers, deleted all of it, because he's starting a house of prayer in his city, a presence-centered environment, which is wild to me. Do you know what people would 
pay to try to get a million followers on social media? Let me tell you something. It's not about the followers on social media. It's about who are you following? Who are you going after? And he literally shut everything down to to plant this ministry that's going to have prayer and presence of Jesus at the center. It's fantastic watching this. Well, our little spiritual family is finding ourselves in the same story. I mean, here we are, and God has given us this grace that, get this, I mean, it just, every time I think about it, it's crazy. He's given us this grace that for 15 years, we have hosted a live worship and prayer meeting that has never stopped That at the center of who we are, at at the core of our spiritual alignment, we are a people who are organized, who live around the presence. And even right now in one of our rooms, in our our, uh, student wing, we've got somebody there even right now continuing worship. Not because we're trying to, to get anything, like if they worship, then it'll be better in here. I mean, yes, maybe it will be, but... It's, it's, it's because Jesus is worthy. He's worthy every second of every minute of every hour of every day. And so the worship just meets his worth. Does that make sense? The worship is just commensurate with the value of him. And that's why it never stops. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about the biblical background about why we do ceaseless worship, why worship and prayer is our spiritual center, why presence and uh, uh, the presence of Jesus is our spiritual center. You know, I realize this, um, you know, in, in the charismatic circles, you know, people will go, oh yeah, yeah, you guys worship and pray all day and all night. They go, oh, that's so cool. And I go, yeah, yeah. And they go, that, that, that's amazing. And, and, and it's like it never goes further than that in their mind. Y'all are so charismatic. Like, you really must love Bethel music, huh? <laughs> Y'all are really into Maverick City. That's why you keep going, huh? No, that's not why. There's real, biblical, clear theology that empowers us as a people to live with a center of worship and prayer ceaselessly. And so I'm not, I can't go through the volumes of theology today, but I want to give some clarity about the unfolding story of the kingdom and how God makes this super clear in the scripture and then how we get to take our part in that story. Amen. So look at Malachi 1 with me. And Malachi, is in, in chapter one, he is going to release a shocking prophecy. I'm going to do my best to get this done by the time we dismiss the kids, but at 11.50, go get your kids. I'm thinking I'm going to have to go till, till noon. All the Baptists are going to beat us, beat us to the buffet today. Praise God. It's okay. I almost said the Baptists are going to beat us to the baptismal. Baptists are going to beat us to the buffet. All right. Say that 10 times fast. So Malachi 1, there is this amazing thing that's going on there in Malachi 1 and this shocking prophecy that Malachi is going to give. And just for context, Malachi is prophesying at the time of Nehemiah, just to put that in context. 
And, and so here's what's going on in Malachi's day. The temple has been rebuilt. Israel has come out of captivity. They have restarted worship and prayer and the sacrifices that take place in the temple. Except for the hearts of the people have grown cold. So they're doing the externals of the sacrifices without the heart of devotion and worship. They've grown religious. You know what that's like, right? You find yourself going through the motion and your heart isn't alive like it used to be. Well, this is what's going on. But it's not just going on a little bit. It's not like they're having a bad day. They're having a bad life. I mean, what they've done is they've transitioned now to, instead of really worshiping God and giving him their best, they're literally giving him their worst. So what they're doing is when they have animals that they're supposed to bring for the sacrifice, they're finding the one that's diseased, the one that they wouldn't want anyway, and they're bringing that in and they're sacrificing the diseased one. They're bringing in the animal that's blind or that's got a problem and they're the weak one, the runt. They're bringing that one in and they're offering that to the Lord. Well, Malachi shows up and he is going to rebuke that coldness and that hardness of heart. And, and literally the Lord says through Malachi, you're bringing me stuff that you wouldn't even serve to your own governor. Like if you did a banquet for the governor, you wouldn't give him this, you know, animal that's diseased. And, and the Lord says, why would you give it to me? And he's calling them out of their religion, out of their going through the motions on the outside without the internal. He's calling them into, you know, legitimate passion. But he says something very, very strong in verse 10. And he says this, who is there even among you who would shut the doors? so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain. Ouch. He says, I have no pleasure in you. And the point is, I have no pleasure in these kinds of offerings. He says, uh, nor will I accept an offering for your hand, from your hands. He goes, as long as you're going through the external and going through the motions on the outside without your heart in agreement, he goes, I have no pleasure in that and I do not want it. In fact, he says, I wish somebody would just shut it down. So intense. You're like, well, that's the, that's the temple. That's the center of the people of God. That's the worship environment. He goes, I'd rather there be no services than this kind of a service. And then he goes in verse 11, and he drops another bomb. And this prophecy in verse 11 is absolutely stunning. It would be a massive paradigm. I mean, more than a shift. It would be a paradigm 180 for the people at the time, he says, for from the rising of the sun, even though it's going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So the Lord prophesies through Malachi that there is coming a day when the Lord's name will be great all over the nations of the earth. We call that global revival. When the name of the Lord is great in every tribe, tongue, people, and, and nation, in every sphere of every society across the globe, that's what he's talking about. My name shall be great across the nations, across the Gentiles. But what he says, it's, that how it's going to happen is stunning. He says... 
in every place from the rising of the sun unto its going down. Now, this is not a trick question. Where does the sun rise? And where does it set? And is it always sunrise in the earth? It's always sunrise somewhere. And it's always sunset somewhere. So when he says from the east to the west, in every place, he's talking about the whole earth being wrapped in this thing that he says Gentiles will offer incense to my name. Now you've just got to catch this. The only people that were allowed to offer incense in Malachi and Nehemiah's day was the Levites. Nobody gets to just go offer incense. Nadab and Abihu found out the, the, the wrong way. You don't just get to do it. Even if you've got an anointing on you to do it as the priest, you can't just do it as you want to, when you want to. And so here we have it. He says, no, it's going to be incense from Gentiles. It's going to be all over the world. Everywhere the sun rises and the sun sets. Well, that incense, I mean, virtually all the commentators that you'll read will tell you that that incense he's talking about is worship. In fact, Revelation 5 identifies that. Revelation 8, that the incense that's offered is prayer and worship to the Lord. And so what he prophesies through Malachi is this. I'm shutting down the Levitical priesthood and I'm raising up a new priesthood and that priesthood isn't going to be Levites. It's going to be Gentiles and those Gentiles are going to be offering me sacrifices all over the earth and my name will be great across the nations. It's a shocking prophecy. Well, from this side of the prophecy, it's pretty amazing, right? Because we know that Jesus came, he died on the cross, he shed his blood for our sin, and the veil of the temple was ripped open, and we know that you and I, in Jesus now, we are a kingdom of priests. And so, man, when you get that piece of the cross and, and who we are as the people of God, when you get that in in your mind, and you read Malachi's prophecy, you go, oh my goodness. Malachi was saying something that they could never have imagined, but we're seeing it even now. I, was, I had the privilege on um, Saturday, on yesterday, to be on a call. There was 100 leaders on this, this call, and they wanted me to share with them about prayer and worship. And, and these, this group of leaders was such a unique group they were from all the nations in the Arabian Peninsula. I'm talking Oman, Yemen, Saudi Arabia, places like that. And there's a hundred beautiful faces, every kind of you know, ethnicity. And, and I'm looking at these men and these women, and they're all prayer leaders in their region, some of them in underground environments, some of them, they couldn't even put their face in the Zoom call. I know that we do that if we're doing Zooms, a lot of times just, oh, I'm doing coffee and pajamas today. They're do <laughs> there were no faces on that Zoom call for a lot of them because it's just too dangerous. 
And I was sharing with them, and I shared with them this passage out of Malachi. I said, do you understand? There's something God is unfolding across the nations that he promised through Malachi, and you are a part of it. It might be you and four of your friends in an underground environment that is so risky and so, so scary at times, but Malachi prophesied that everywhere from the rising of the sun to the going down, that God's name would be great and that incense, worship, and prayer would be given to his name. And I said, and you guys are doing it. And I'm watching some of the faces and boom, they just start weeping. We have brothers and sisters all across the nations right now, ones we don't even know. We don't know the name. We don't know who they are, but they're actually going after this thing to have worship and prayer established in closed regions of the earth. And they have a burning in their heart. They may not even know the, the, the Bible verses behind it, but they're burning for this thing to, because they want to see Jesus' name become great in their region. Well, that's what Malachi prophesied about. And I would just say this, that for me, whenever, whenever I, I, I was a youth pastor and I was going after revival, I want to see breakthrough in, in, in our county and in our city, and, and I wanted to see 100,000 you know, teens born again, and, and I was just really leaning in this thing. The Lord, in that season of pursuing an inbreaking of God, he redirected me to pursue God. Because revival isn't about the souls that we want the souls. It's not about the healings that we want the healings. It's not about the deliverances that we want that. Revival is about Jesus. It's about Jesus coming and having his way. So he redirects me to seek Jesus. Well, the most natural way for me to do that is worship and prayer and going deep in the word. And so when, when we built the house of prayer, the whole thing was built on who is God? The knowledge of God, adoring God, worshiping God. And it's this point that Malachi is making. It's so that his name can be great, that the nature and the knowledge of God can be seen. And Malachi, is, he's giving us this idea that for the name of God, the nature of God, the knowledge of God to be great in a place, it has to start with a people who will give their hearts to him in adoration and worship, offering incense. That's where the thing begins. And from that place, from that center of presence and prayer, everything else flows. Now, the throne room in heaven, it's worship and prayer night and day, and everything flows from there. From the temple that they had seen established in, in, in Jesus' time and, 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 and prior, the, the presence of God was at the center, and everything else was flowing. This is what Malachi is describing, that there will be people all across the nations, primarily Gentiles. That's you and me. If you're not from a Jewish background, you're primarily a Gentile that would live their life with the center of worship and prayer, adoration to his name. And from that place, all the other kingdom effects flow. Teaching, discipleship, training, evangelism, mission, spiritual family, care. All these things flow from that center. Now, I want you to see something. Flip over and look at Acts 13. Anybody carrying a paper Bible today? Oh, there's one. Remember those things? Oh, yeah. Those are cool things. All right. 
That's right. Pretty soon, it's, he just said, because it's new technology. <laughs> Pretty soon, it'll be like that. Remember those books? Oh, boo, boo, boo. Okay, okay, bless. <laughs> I didn't mean to step on your, your paper book toes over there. Okay, Acts 13. So Acts 13, if, you, if you've never looked at this, man, put an asterisk by Acts 13. You gotta, you gotta put a star by Acts 13. Acts 13 gives us details about the church at Antioch. Now, if you, if you study the book of Acts at all, of course, you find out the outpouring of the Holy Spirit starts in Jerusalem. That's where, that's where Pentecost happens, and, and then thousands get saved in Jerusalem. But by Acts chapter 8, massive persecution is hitting the church. And so in Acts 8, we find that many of the believers that had gotten saved in Jerusalem, they're scattered. And, and some of the places that they're scattered are like Cyprus and Cyrene and Phoenicia and, and all these places. It'd be like modern day Lebanon and, and, and through different areas of the Middle East, even to like Samaria and like what would be like modern day Turkey and Syria. And so uh, Antioch would be in modern-day Syria. And, and so these believers are scattered around. Well, when they're scattered, they go preaching the gospel. But because they're being scattered, they're being pursued. Remember, Paul was hunting Christians. They're, they're, they're going where the Jews don't normally go. They're going to Gentiles. Praise God. That's you and me. And so the gospel gets spread through all these Gentiles until so many of these uh, believers, these new Gentile believers, they gather in this city, Antioch. Now, what's going on in Antioch is amazing because they've got an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They've got signs, wonders, and miracles. They've got many, many, many Gentile converts, many people getting saved, but get this, they don't have one leader from Jerusalem. It's a spontaneous outbreak of the power of the Holy Spirit. It's fantastic. So by Acts 11, the, the testimony comes back to Jerusalem. The, the leaders in Jerusalem say, hey, let's find out what's going on in Antioch. We heard there's these things happening. There's something happening. And so they send Barnabas down, the encourager. They send him down there to sniff it out. What's going on down there? And when Barnabas sees the grace of God, he reports back to the leaders in Jerusalem. He says, this thing's real. This thing is legit. Something's really going on here. And immediately, the Bible says, Barnabas goes to Tarsus. And he goes to Tarsus because he wants to find Paul. Now, when you read through the book of Acts, you might just go, yeah, so Paul, he was there in Tarsus for a weekend. He was hanging out with his old family. No, no, Paul had been in Tarsus for about 15 years. Paul had been on the run himself. See, there was, a, there was a hit put out on Paul's life, so he had to go and hide as well. Well, when Barnabas sees the Gentiles getting saved, Barnabas had had a connection with Paul when Paul had visited Jerusalem 15 years earlier, and, and, and Barnabas remembers Paul had this word about being a light to the Gentiles. So Barnabas goes and finds Paul, brings him to Antioch, and undoubtedly Barnabas is like, hey, listen, this thing that's going on in Antioch is the thing that Jesus spoke to you about when he appeared to you on that Damascus road. 
And so Paul goes and, and he makes this, this ragtag group of who knows who's, he makes that his home church. So Antioch becomes Paul the Apostle's home church, and it's the central place of sending the missions movement in the New Testament. That's why you need to put an asterisk by it. And so what we find is that Paul with Barnabas, that they're meeting and they're there for a year in Antioch. And then we pick up the story in Acts 13. Now in the church at Antioch, that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. This is so powerful. I would really encourage you when you read the Bible, slow down. Because what we find in this passage is a prototype for how Paul ends up doing church planting through his missionary journeys. And, and what I want to point out is this. This is about 17 years after Pentecost, 17 or 20, just depending on how you, you do the math. But, but here's the thing. Remember, the disciples on the day of Pentecost, they had been praying in the upper room for 10 days straight. And then the Holy Spirit is poured out on them. They had a prayer and presence center. Then they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then from that place, they went and preached the gospel. This is how God started church planting in the New Testament. That's how the church at Jerusalem came about. Well, here we're going to now fast forward 17 years later. And what we find is in this church in Antioch, this leadership team, who I want to mention is a multicultural leadership team, Jews and Gentiles together. And what we find out is verse two, it says, as they ministered unto the Lord. Now, when you get underneath those phrases, what that says is this, that they were continuing in ministry, which is worship. They were continuing in worship to God. This was not a singular prayer meeting. This wasn't a special moment. This was how they were doing their life. They were spending their days ministering unto the Lord. That word for minister, it is the Greek word liturgio. It's the same word that's used to describe how priests minister to God in the temple. So Paul, Barnabas, Manaean, Lucius, Simeon, these leaders of the church at Antioch, they are focused on spending their days worshiping and praying and ministering unto God. What am I trying to tell you? That the church at Antioch had a prayer and presence center. Does that make sense? And so it's in this place where they worship and pray first, then the Holy Spirit speaks. 
And I just want to propose that we've gotten so committed to the ends that we think that God is after that we have forgotten the means that we're supposed to practice. And so what we see is they were, almost 20 years later, still practicing the same means in Antioch that they had practiced in Jerusalem. Am I making sense right now? They started with worship and prayer at the center until the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In Antioch, they are ministering to the Lord in worship and prayer, and then the Holy Spirit speaks. And from that place of the Holy Spirit speaking, he says, let's send Barnabas and Saul. Let's send them into what I've called them to do. And so what this gives us is a really interesting sort of picture, a prototype of how church is supposed to function. Now, listen, I know each of us has a different church background. I mean, we're the, we're the function of, of three merged families, but I know if we just did a poll in this room, we'd probably find 50 different backgrounds, denominations, you know, all sorts of different experiences, and, and what I realize about us is that oftentimes we think church equals what I grew up with, right? You know, it just equals, this is how we do, this is what I grew up with, you know? And, and I remember the first time I went to a church that actually served wine, real wine, in the communion. I was expecting my grape juice, glory to God. I grew up Methodist. They don't do wine in the Methodist church. I was expecting... <laughs> Grape juice. And I remember going with a friend. I remember being young, maybe 10 or something. And I go and I, uh, whoa, what is, what is that? Your, your grape juice tastes terrible. <laughs> and my friend's like, what's wrong? We, we drink wine at our church. I'm like, man, we do grape juice. How, what, what is that? And, and just, there's so many things like that in our minds from our upbringings. C- can we... Can we, just, can we just be okay and say, you know what, let's get what church is supposed to look like from the Bible instead of what we were raised in? Like, is that okay? Uh, and I know for some people are like, but wait a minute. I mean, all my t- traditions, listen, there's so many traditions in the Bible. We, we want all the biblical traditions, but what we do not want is man-made religion. We want what the Bible offers. And so when I see Paul the apostle, the number one church planter in the New Testament, and Antioch, the prototype church, and they are centering themselves around worship and prayer unto hearing the Holy Spirit, unto the outreach of the gospel, my antennas go up. And I go, oh, man, this thing isn't necessarily about all these things we've made it about. Do we want teaching? Yes. Do we want discipleship? Yes. Did they do that? Yes. Do we want care and family and relationship and closeness and knitness? Yes, yes, yes. Did they do that? Yes. We want all that. We're not saying all that goes to the side. No, all that is a part of the package of what it means to live as the the family of God, to live as church. But the center is worship and prayer. And so I want to point this out. They start off with this ministered unto the Lord, liturgio. They start off priesting before the Lord. What is that? That's just worship and adoration. 
That's just prayer and, and, and communion with God. That, that's, just, that's just loving him and adoring him for him. It's what Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. You'll, you'll, he goes, you'll get to a place of prayer. will blow your mind. You'll ask what you wish and it'll be done for you. Because you, your heart gets so transformed. It gets so shifted that you're not in it for yourself anymore. You're in it for him. And, and so he goes, it's from this place of abiding with the word dwelling richly that we enter into this effectiveness. Well, that's exactly what we see in Antioch. They start off priesting before his presence as the first and central thing. And from there, the Holy Spirit said... You see, it goes priest, prophet, and then king. For some reason, we go prophet, priest, and king. David was a prophet, priest, and king. But really, David was first a priest. He was a little boy out on the backside of the desert playing a harp, worshiping God. He was priesting before him. And it was in that place of, of priesting that the Lord said, I found a man after my own heart. And then the Lord anoints David, the prophetic breaks in on his life that he's called into a kingly anointing. Does that make sense? Priesting first, then the prophecy, then the kingly anointing. Well, in the New Testament, it's priesting first, then the prophecy, and then the apostolic anointing. Because God sends them to expand the kingdom of God. And here's what we really want. We want to see Jesus' kingdom expand the way that Jesus designed for it to expand. It's an ever-increasing kingdom. We want to see souls get born again legitimately. We want to see churches get planted. We want to see missions environments explode. We want to see the gospel go viral. We want to see Jesus go viral. Sometimes I think because God will meet us wherever he can get in. But sometimes I think we've been ineffective because we've gone after his ends, but not by his means. And so we've reoriented our environment so that worship and prayer is at the center so that from that place of adoration and worship and communion and abiding, from that place, then we hear the break in. We hear the voice of the Lord speak. The spirit of prophecy breaks in. The Lord says, this is what I want you to do. And from there, then we obey and we follow. Guys, this is a, a, a huge thought. I'm giving you this from a spiritual DNA standpoint because this is a huge thought in how we want to live and how we want to lead in our environment. We don't think of prayer as the salt that you put on the main meal. We think of prayer as the soil that everything grows from. That without that abiding reality of worship and prayer, we're likely to produce flesh. We're likely to produce whatever we, whatever we think is right, whatever we think is best. And you know what's so kind about the Lord? He will meet us in whatever place we give him. But I just believe that there is a way that God wants to set things up with him at the center that is going to bring a kingdom effect that is far greater than we ever imagined or ever dreamed. 
I just got to say this, when they all get up, I always think I just hit a bad point. Oh no. <laughs> They're literally walking out while I'm preaching. And then I look, I go, oh, praise God. 1150, praise God. I don't know if anybody else feels that, but I do while I'm preaching. We want to live this way as a spiritual family. Now, listen, we recognize not everybody can do 24-7 worship and prayer. Hello. But you know what? As a spiritual family, we can. And, and, and I want to I show you something. There are probably about two dozen verses in the New Testament that give thoughts around this idea, but because we think of these verses in an isolated individual way, we don't really know what they're saying. And so we dismiss them. So uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. Have you ever read that verse and thought, I don't know, dear God, I can't do that. <laughs> I, I mean, I have to sleep. Like, what, what are we talking about? Pray without ceasing. There's no way. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever read the Bible like that where you just, you read verses, you're like, I can't, there's, I'm, it's impo- and you're just defeated. You're like, ugh. Give me another verse. Give me something. Be kind. I'm not kind, but I can try. But I can't try that. Pray without ceasing. When you read that in context, he says, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. And the letter to the church in Thessalonians, is that written to individuals or is it written to the church? It's written to the church. In fact, Almost all the admonitions about prayer in the New Testament are a corporate you. So when he says, pray without ceasing, he's he's hinting at this center of prayer and presence among the people of God. When he says, rejoice always, he's talking about all of us together holding this place of rejoicing before the Lord. And so what is our 24-7 prayer environment, but it's us as a people that are giving ourselves corporately to this place of encounter where we're putting Jesus' presence at the center. Does that make sense? And so I'm giving you to this, and I'm giving this to you because I know it's a little bit like a, a teaching and a little technical, but I'm giving it to you so you understand who we are. Why do we do that? It's not just because we like lots of, you know, Hillsong and Maverick City worship music. We're a people trying to live biblically, trying to follow what Malachi prophesied is going to come on the earth, that there's going to be people all over the nations offering incense and a pure offering to his name, that the, the people of God would first be a priestly people who then hear the prophetic voice, who then move in apostolic power. And that's who I believe we're called to be, and that's who you are. Because for us, we actually have missionaries who raise their own support, and some of them go all over the nations. We've got six missions bases around the earth, but some of them actually stay here and live here, and they see to it that the worship and prayer, that it never ceases. Now, we've got about 45 or 50 of those, but here's the thing. 45 or 50 people can't keep 24-7 going. It takes all of us, our whole spiritual family. Do you know there's around 200 people that see to it that the work of night and day worship and prayer never ceases? 
the vast majority of which are y'all. It's our spiritual family that's holding that fire on the altar. And so if you think about it in this way, it's helpful to clarify it. It's like those missionaries that do this as their vocation. It's like they are stepping into the identity as Levites who tend the altar, but we are the kingdom of priests who hold the 24-7 as our centerpiece of offering to the Lord. Does that make sense? To two people, praise God. <laughs> and I know for some of you, you're like, dude, I know this. And I'm like, I, I know, but, but what you don't maybe realize is that probably 50% of our spiritual family is new in the last three years. Yeah. I mean, as we've continued to grow, we've continued to add people, and we have to give clarity for people so they can understand, what is that prayer room thing? Like I told y'all last week, you know, Bryce, he had told me, he goes, man, you've got to give a disclaimer. When people walk into the prayer room, this may take you out, you know, because he had such an encounter with the Lord when he came in. And so we want to give clarity as this point of DNA. This is our centerpiece. Amen and amen. All right, let's stand. His name is going to be great across the nations. 